Is it a happy day because our sins are gone and we are we rejoice in our salvation? But I don't know about you, but it's it's a happy day when I hear some thunder and see some lightning too. That was I don't know if you guys we had a little bit of it today, not not much, but just enough to to enjoy. I remember thinking back today that it had to be one of the first Sundays that we were out here, moving out here from the southeast and. Within the first month, there was a day, a Sunday, we met in the mornings then and came back in the evenings. And during that Sunday afternoon, there was this huge thunderstorm, which we thought was really cool. And we get back to church that night, and it was like the talk of church. And what we didn't realize was that it happened, you know, once every, not very often out here. And we were used to that, you know, being a, a regular occurrence. So we, we really enjoy uh, being able to sit on on the porch and just listen to the thunder and, and uh it's fun to see that lightning and they just wait. Okay, I know it's coming. Just wait for that thunder. It's, I don't know about you, but I just find that really, uh, really, really enjoyable. First Peter chapter 2. And our text today is just verses 11 and 12. And let me, as we get started, read those for us. First Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Father, take your word now and teach us from it. May your Holy Spirit come and apply the truths that we will see today. And through his working in our life and in our heart would give us the means and ability to accomplish that which you want us to accomplish. In light of what you teach us from these verses today. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an expression that goes something like this. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. So you're familiar with it. This phrase actually originated way back in the day in a letter in which Augustine was explaining to a man named Januarius that though Augustine himself did not normally fast on Saturdays, he noted that when he was in Rome where they did fast on Saturdays, Augustine fasted on Saturdays. And so out of that came this this saying that we know well today and has been applied in many different ways in our culture. That when you're in Rome, do as the Romans do. The saying now is really used broadly to speak of the necessity for us or for anyone to adopt the customs of the culture in which they are traveling or in which they live. And I'm sure there's some of you here that, that do more traveling than I do, especially to foreign countries, and you're, you're well aware of, of the things that, that are good to do when you're in a foreign country and even things to avoid doing when you're in those foreign countries. I think for some of us, applying this is, is simply just a good way to avoid giving off that tourist vibe. You know, when you're traveling somewhere, some of us don't necessarily want to stand out as the tourist. But really, in some countries, it's 
there are things that if we do them in those countries, it could be highly offensive. And it's offensive to those people for someone from another country to come in and refuse to to adopt those customs while they're there. You see, all of this is done in an attempt to fit in. All of us want to fit in to whatever group we are associating with. None of us want to stand out for being different. We want to fit in. And this philosophy is fine and good when we're talking about world travels or social interaction. When we talk about our spiritual lives, our spiritual interactions, adopting this philosophy is actually the opposite of the philosophy that we're called to adopt. See, we see clearly from our text today that we are, in fact, to live in contrast to the surrounding culture in which we live. These two verses really, as we look at them, are, are quite straightforward. That was one of the things I was struck with as I, as I read and studied these things. There's really, it's really clear to understand what Peter's writing here. There's not a whole lot of ambiguity in, in what he's saying. These two verses act as, as an introduction to this section that starts with these verses and continues on through chapter 4, verse 11. In this book, of 1 Peter follows the same pattern that we've observed in many New Testament books. Where the book begins with the author laying out our identity in Christ. We saw this in, in our study of, through Ephesians. There Paul laid out our identity in Christ. Here Peter has done the same thing to this point in this letter. We've seen who we are in Christ. What we have in Christ. And then now this next section takes what we've, what we've seen to be true, what we know to be true as our identity, and now shows us how we live and behave in light of that identity. Okay, so we're Christians. We're followers of Christ. This is how we live. And that's the, the section we're, we're getting into now. We're transitioning from this first chapter and a half or so of, of Peter describing who we are in Christ, the inheritance that we have in Christ, to now directing us, how does that identity change the way that we live? And in this introduction, these, these two verses really serve as an introduction. This is, this is moving us, transitioning us into that section. And here Peter connects his exhort, exhortation here to his readers' status as sojourners and exiles in verse 11. And this reference as he writes to them really has a double meaning. Because as we know already from the context of this book, the people that he's writing to are sojourners and exiles. They are people that are literally living outside of their homeland. They're living in a foreign land, in exile. But also it has a reference to their spiritual condition. Being children and heirs of the kingdom of God, they're living as foreigners and exiles in this world. And so we take that second meeting and apply it to our, ourselves. You see, we, we are not people living in a foreign country, physically speaking. 
But we are people as children of God who are living in a foreign country in terms of in, ter- in spiritual terms. We we live in a world that is not our home. Our home is is in the presence of God. Our ho- our home, our ultimate permanent residence awaits us in the future. And so we in a very real sense do live in this world as strangers and exiles. We don't belong here. We belong to another kingdom. But in God's will and in his providence, we live here right now. And so we, we need to understand what Peter is writing to his readers. What he has to, to write to them is important for us to understand as well where we are. And in light of our status as sojourners and exiles, we are urged in verse 11 to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And this exhortation to abstain is really given for two reasons. First, these passions are fleshly passions. They're inconsistent with our lives as, as children of God. These passions of the flesh are inconsistent with our identity in Christ that we've already seen. We've been saved from these passions. And secondly, these passions are an act of hostility against our souls. See that in verse 11. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So not only are these passions of the flesh inconsistent with our new identity in Christ, but these fleshly passions are in battle against our soul. That the enemy uses against us and our souls. But there's also a third reason behind this abstaining from passions of the flesh and this pursuit of righteousness. As we move into verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. You see, by living out our righteousness in a public way among the Gentiles, we are the means by which they are brought to faith in Christ. Just a little bit of clarification to help us understand. In the context of 1 Peter, the term Gentiles used here is used to refer generally to those not following Christianity. Peter writes to to his readers as people who who have become Christians. And so talking about the Gentiles, the nations around them, are all those that are not following after Christ. And so I say that the ultimate goal through our abstinence from the passions of the flesh and our living and honorable conduct is that they are brought to Christ. Those that are not yet following Christ are brought to Christ. I think this is the best understanding of what Peter means when he concludes verse 12 by saying that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, in the vast majority of the time in Scripture, this phrase, day of visitation, is used to speak of that final judgment. When God pronounces judgment on those who have rejected Him. And certainly, while the Bible does say that, that at that day, we know specifically from Philippians, at that day, every knee will in fact bow, every tongue will in fact confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
that in and of itself does not mean that these people are glorifying God. It's simply an acknowledgement that that does bring glory to God. But it's an acknowledgement really of just what is true. They recognize at that moment what, what is true, that thing that they have rejected throughout their lives. They recognize to be true. And in fact, most of the time when the Bible speaks of the final judgment and those that will receive that judgment at the final day, it's because it's precisely because they have refused to glorify God. It's because they have refused to honor God for who He is the way that they should. And so I think that really what Peter is referring to here is, is those people that on that day of judgment will give glory to God because they have been saved from that final judgment. And so our lives are to be used as one of the means by which these are brought to faith in Christ so that they might glorify God together with us at that day of judgment because we have been saved from the wrath to come. And so having laid out for us the the fairly straightforward meaning of this text, I want to spend the rest of our time considering our call to action in light of what these verses command us to do. Okay, we've transitioned from merely understanding our identity with Christ to now wanting to see what it is we're called to do in light of that. And to do that for our purposes today, I want to draw out three pursuits that we are to undertake from this text. The first pursuit, and these are actually listed in your bulletin if you have one of those and want to follow along. The first pursuit from this text that I want us to see is that we are called to continue to fight sin and live honorably. Our lives must be a continual battle against the enemy of sin that is present with us. Precisely because of its power to destroy us. Its power to deaden our spiritual walk. These passions of the flesh that are still with us in our old man have the ability in this life to deaden our spiritual walk. And so they must be battled. I mentioned that just a few minutes ago. They they are in active hostility against us. And they must be battled. We must take up arms against them. These passions of the flesh that Peter writes about are those attitudes and behaviors that characterized our lives prior to our new birth in Christ. Again, back to Ephesians. Paul writes about these passions of the flesh in Ephesians chapter 2 when he describes our lost condition before we receive God's mercy. He describes us as dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. These passions of the flesh were the things that characterized us before our new life in Christ. Prior to that, we were, we were dead in bondage to these sins, these passions. We were in bondage to serve them with no power to overcome their destructive influence in our life. 
But now in Christ we have, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, the ability working in us to overcome these passions of the flesh. Another helpful text in helping us deal with our fight against sin is Paul's discussion of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5 verses 16 and 17, he writes this, But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So he lays out again for us the battle that that exists. The works of the flesh, as Paul writes in Galatians, the passions of the flesh that Peter writes in, in 1 Peter, same thing. They are in opposition to the working of the Spirit. Those passions of the flesh according to Galatians 5.17, keep us from doing the things we want to do, the works of the Spirit. What are those things that we want to do? Well, they're summarized later in in Galatians chapter 5 under the heading of the fruit of the Spirit, verses 22 through 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so in order for us to live honorably, as Peter writes in in 1 Peter 2.12, to keep our conduct honorable means that we're fighting the passions of the flesh. As Paul said in Galatians 5, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified these and go on crucifying them experientially because they are in opposition to the honorable conduct that we're called to pursue. The two cannot coexist together. We cannot give place for the passions of the flesh while at the same time we're pursuing an honorable life of obedience to God and pursuit of righteousness. We can't give space to the first if we're going to accomplish the second. And I understand that this is all the spiritual work. This is accomplished through the power of the gospel, the the indwelling spirit that that enables us to overcome sin. understand that. There's also a responsibility that each one of us has as, as sons of God to be fighting sin. To be putting away the passions of the flesh. So that we might follow in obedience. Demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. So the first pursuit that we're called to do as as Christians. As those in Christ. Is to continue to fight sin. Our battle with sin is, is not over because we are in Christ. Our battle with sin continues. And and so the first pursuit we commit ourselves to is this continual fight against sin and pursuit of an honorable life. So to briefly analyze our own lives. Is our life, is your life characterized by an ongoing fight against sin 
and an increasing growth in these fruits of the Spirit? Or is our life characterized by ongoing giving in to the passions of the flesh? Or trying to, trying to, to live in both worlds? Giving into the passions of the flesh while at the same time trying to pursue the fruit of the Spirit. It's hopeless. It, it, it doesn't work that way. We can't give in to the passions of the flesh and hope to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. How would your family rate you in, in these areas? How, did, how would those closest to you evaluate your Fight against sin and pursuit of righteousness. Might be a helpful way for us to to better understand how we can obey God by considering how those who see us best, who see us closest, evaluate how we're doing in our fight against sin. Are we taking it seriously? How do other members of your community group, how would they answer this question? As the, if they were to evaluate your fight against sin, how, what, what would their answer be as, as they watch your life? Would they be able to say that you are in, you are in battle against sin? You are seeking to defeat the passions of the flesh through the power of the Spirit or... Or would their answer have to be that they see no evidence of, of this battle because you're continually giving in to, to the passions of the flesh? How about those that read your posts on social media? What, what would their answer be to how you're fighting this battle? Do they see evidence of your putting off the passions of the flesh in order to live an honorable life of obedience to Christ? Does your outward testimony portray that this is happening in your, in your life internally? Are you reflecting a desire to overcome sin and continue to be shaped into the image of Christ? Is that evident? And that really transitions us well to our second pursuit that we're called to in verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter 2. Not only are we called to continue our fight against sin and pursuit of, of honorable living, but we are to publicly demonstrate good and honorable conduct. Did you know that your life is on display right now? Did you know that? Like it or not, it's a reality we, we have to understand. People are watching us. People are evaluating us, whether we like it or not. But even more than that, according to these verses, that's precisely what needs to be the case. God has designed it so that people are watching us. 
People are observing us. Literally, our lives are on public display. And that's the way God has intended it. There are probably many objections running through your mind right now. I had some of my own as I thought about this. I mean, after all, aren't we supposed to be humble as Christians? Aren't we supposed to do our righteous deeds in private? Wasn't that the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? Those things we do, don't do them for show. Do them in your closet. And I believe the crux of the issue, and this this really is even what Jesus addressed in the Sermon on the Mount, was the motivation behind what we're doing. Are we doing what we're doing simply to be seen by others? Or are we doing what we're doing out of a love for Christ and a pursuit of righteousness? I think that's really where, as, as people, as we understand this passage, that, that we are, our testimony ought to be seen by others. It ought to be lived out in front of others. This is where it's important to understand that, that alongside of that, there ought to be a verbal testimony that, co- that comes into it. There needs to be an explanation for why we're living the way we're living. The whole point of our publicly holy life is that for there to be an obvious connection between our outward righteous behavior, or at least our pursuit of that, and the inward transformation that has taken place in our heart. You see, if, if those that watch us simply see a nice, upstanding, moral person, and they don't know why that is, then that defeats the purpose. Because I, I see all the time nice, upstanding, moral people that may or may not have a relationship with Christ. They might just be nice, moral, upstanding people. And so the point of our pursuit of righteousness being on public display is so that they might know that there has been a transformation inwardly that is working itself outwardly. And that's what they see. So I brought up the Sermon on the Mount earlier. So on one hand, Jesus told his hearers not to perform their works of righteousness simply to be seen by by men, but to be seen by God. But before he got to that, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, he told them this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp. And put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, that sounds familiar. That's exactly what Peter's telling us. Publicly demonstrate this 
honorable conduct so that others see those good works. Once again, I think Paul in Ephesians is helpful in filling out what, it, what this looks like in our everyday lives. If you were here in our study of Ephesians, you remember from chapter 4, the latter part of that chapter, Paul lists sins that were to be put off. But he didn't stop there. He followed that up with behaviors that were to be put on. So for instance, it says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather, rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he can demonstrate the tra- transformation by giving to those that need it. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but rather speak that which builds up for the good of edifying in order to give grace to those who hear. And so it's in Paul's mind, and I think in Peter's mind, it's not good enough just to put off the sins, but it's put on the righteousness and even let others see and and receive the fruits of that righteousness so they can see what's, what's happened. They can see and feel the transformation that has happened in our lives. And so getting back to, to 1 Peter then, to continue to apply this call to us, the whole reason we're living publicly holy lives is so that the Gentiles may see our good works. And the exhortation Peter gives here is to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now there are those that might say, and there are those that do say, that we as Christians, our best strategy is to isolate ourselves from the Gentiles, to isolate ourselves from the world, from the world, seeking to protect ourselves from its influence. But this is not at all what we're called to in Scripture. We're not called to isolate ourselves from the world. Instead of isolating ourselves, we're called to live in the midst of it in a way that speaks and reveals the transformation of the gospel that has, that has worked in our hearts. The purpose of our evangelistic living, if you will, is to generate a response from those who are watching. And it's possible to generate a response in a good way, in a positive way, or a negative way. I mean, think about if if someone finds out that you're a Christian and they answer this way, oh, you're a Christian. Well, that explains a lot. And that could be understood in a negative way because of a a preconceived notion of, of what they think a Christian does. And if we behave in a way that feeds that stereotype, well, that explains a lot to them that we're a Christian. It could even result in, as Peter describes, them speaking against us as evildoers because we fall into doing precisely what they expect a Christian to do. 
But how about the, the flip side of that? I think our goal in, this, in our evangelistic living is for people to respond, oh, you're a Christian. Well, that explains a lot. That explains why you live, why you think the way you do in a positive way. So the, the purpose of our evangelistic living is to generate a response. We want people to respond to not only what we're saying with our, our, our lips, but the way that we're living before them, the way we're living out, we're talking about with our mouths. Now, in order to do this, this might be the most basic thing we can get here. In order to do this, living publicly holy lives among the Gentiles is to be living among the Gentiles. And so, I ask us to consider how much of our lives are we living among the Gentiles? I mean, even if we're not even if we're not going so far as to say that our goal is just to isolate ourselves, trying to protect ourselves. Even if, even if we're not going that far and, and, and saying that, I think functionally we just often isolate ourselves without even thinking about it. We, we, just, we don't deliberately take steps to take our lives and live them out in front of people that need to see the gospel demonstrated. How much of our lives are we living among non-Christians? And the answer to this will really vary from person to person, family to family. Just because of the difference in, in our lives, you know, where we work, where we live, the hobbies we have, all the things we do, our answer is going to be different. And so I ask for us to consider this question. In what ways can we reprioritize our, our activities in order to increasingly live in this manner? Is there room in the organization of our priorities to take some, even some of the things we're already doing and not changing what we do, but trying to do them alongside non-Christians? Instead of our, our whole life being wrapped up in church stuff and with church people, which isn't, it's not a bad thing. But why not take our lives and live them in, in the midst of the Gentiles, among the Gentiles, as Peter calls us to do, so that they see the way that our faith in Christ lives itself out. For many of us, this could be done simply through engaging with those already close to us in proximity. We've talked about interacting with neighbors in the past. And I know some of you are, are very good at, at engaging with those that live in close proximity to you. That's a wonderful thing. 
And I've heard testimonies of people in this body that have, have had opportunities to testify verbally of the gospel because of the relationships that have been built with neighbors. And so for, for the rest of us, could we deliberately prioritize interaction with neighbors and, and co-workers outside of work? Trying to create opportunities to build these relationships so that we can live out our life. And they can see, they can, they can watch the way that we live and know that the Spirit is, is in fact working through us as we talk about. Perhaps we could be more deliberate into inviting people into our homes. Whether it's actually inviting them into our house or even just inviting them to participate with our families in, in things. So it's, it's not a either spend time with your family or spend time with the lost. You can do both. And it could be a means of building those relationships so that our lives can be living testimonies of the gospel. I believe we as a church should be thinking about how we can increasingly reach our community by doing things among the community. How can we as a church reach out to our community by by taking ourselves out into the community and serving our community? I mean, I think there's things that we can be doing right now. I think, I think there's things that we... That, that having a, a facility, even as we've recently talked about, having a facility could help, sorry the pun, facilitate these things. But what can we as a church, how can we as a church increase our presence in the community around us? Yes, we want to invite people to come to church. And that's, that's a, a wonderful thing. I'm not downplaying that at all. But we also want to take our lives out there where they are so that they can see our lives. Even our life as a church together. And I think even, it's been interesting this week, as many of you know, we, we begun a few weeks ago a youth group study that meets prior to our service here. And we've been reading through a book called Do Hard Things. And the point of that book is to call, specifically in that book, teenagers to, to step up and, and do things, even as we read and talked about today, outside our comfort zone. And how fear of the unknown or fear of failure or fear of what others might think paralyzes us and leads us to inactivity. And I think even for all of us, there is a call to do hard things, things that perhaps are outside of our comfort zone. Maybe if there's something God is leading you to do that is outside your comfort zone, maybe bring someone else alongside to help you. We don't go this alone. 
But we are responsible to obey God's call. To fight sin, but then to publicly demonstrate the work of God that He is working in us. And I do want to make one final consideration in in light of this. We want to behave and and live among non-Christians in a way that does not turn them off to what we're trying to communicate, certainly. We don't want our lifestyle to be so offensive that it turns them away. And really, I think that's part of... It's it's easier for our words to communicate that. But if if our words are joined with our, our lifestyle, it prevents us from... It prevents our words from turning them off because it's unmistakable to them the truth of what we are communicating by the evidence that we demonstrate. But having said that, we must note, as I alluded to earlier, that Peter mentions in verse 12 that even to his readers, that they will be spoken against as evildoers. There will be those that reject what they believe, what they're preaching, what they're living out. So our pursuit of demonstrating this gospel transformation must be calibrated by the recognition that it may not always be well received. And we can be okay with that. That won't discourage us. Or let that not discourage us. But rather let us continue on in obedience to the call. To this pursuit of evangelistic living that we're called to. And then finally this third pursuit. And that's simply to seek the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. This really kind of summarizes what our heart attitude ought to be behind all of this. Behind this fight against sin and then the the public demonstration of of this spiritual walk is that we want God to accomplish something through all of this. We want God to accomplish something through our life. We want to be used by Him so that others would be brought to faith in our Savior as well. And we go about this by praying that God would enable us to faithfully execute these pursuits that we've laid out. We pray that God would enable us to put away the passions of the flesh and to put on a a life of honorable conduct that reflects the transformation that's taken place. And so we pray that God would enable us to, to do that. And we pray that God would Give us a, such a hunger for, for His glory to be made known. And a heart of compassion for the lost that drives us to obey God in these ways. Lord, give us, give us a vision for Your glory being displayed to those people that I live around, that, that see my life. Lord, give me a heart of compassion for the lost that I want to Go live among them so that they might understand the gospel and be saved just as I have been.
We pray in faith for God to use us as messengers of the gospel. We believe. We can be confident that God is at work. God is at work in the lives of those people that are watching you. And we we pray in faith that God would just allow us to be a part of their coming to faith in Christ. John Piper summarized it this way. He said, The positive significance of our life is derived from whether our lives direct people's attention to the glory of God. The positive significance of our lives is derived from whether our lives direct people's attention to the glory of God. As we live among others, what is our life directing them to? Is our life directing them to us? Or is our life directing them beyond us to our Savior, to the glory of God? And as we've already noted, our message may not always be warmly received by them. But we can be confident that God is at work in advancing His kingdom through us and that we will ultimately rejoice in His presence with those who have come to faith in Christ because of our testimony of the gospel to them. And Father, so we pray that You would help us to believe the words written in Your Word today from 1 Peter. I pray that we would take seriously our call to these pursuits in light of our identity as a Christian, as one who has been saved through the blood of Christ, who has received an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled, that is waiting for us in heaven. that we would take seriously the call that is upon us to live that out among those that do not yet know that inheritance, do not yet have that identity in Christ. May Your Spirit awaken us to the opportunities that are there for us to publicly demonstrate our lives. And even when it's uncomfortable and scary, that Your Spirit would would enable us to take that step of faith knowing that You are at work and You are able to use even the feeblest of gospel witness, whether with our lips or our lives, to draw someone to Yourself. And so we pray that You would grant to us today a desire to obey Your Word for the sake of the glory of God and even our own joy in in pursuing that. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.